Welcome to the third season of The Morning Glory Project, Stories of Determination. I'm your host, Betsy Graziani-Fassbinder, and together with my co-producer, Angela Washington, we bring you really amazing stories of amazing people. I'm so lucky that I get to have these conversations and to share them with you. These are conversations with people who have overcome, people who have endured, people who have gone on when others might not have. They've overcome losses or tragedies, disappointments and heartbreaks, or they've seen a goal and pursued it to its end. And what I'm really fascinated by is they don't just share that they had these stories or that they lived them, but how, what were their inspirations? What were the resources they used? What ideas kept them going? How did they dig deep and find what they needed to find to go on? Because it's my belief that when we learn how someone else got through hard times or found their goals, that we learn how we might be able to do the same. Thank you so much for listening to the Morning Glory Project. And if you like what you hear, give us a like or a share on your social media site or golly, use the good old-fashioned word of mouth and tell a friend about us. We love sharing these stories with other people. Thanks for listening. It is my pleasure today to welcome to the Morning Glory Project, Judy Lipson. She is the founder and chair of Celebration of Sisters, established in 2011 to commemorate the lives and memories of her beloved sisters and to benefit Massachusetts General Hospital. Judy has published articles, given speeches, and been interviewed by the Open to Hope organization, the Centering Organization, Skating Magazine, and in literature published by Massachusetts General Hospital, where she's maintained a close philanthropic relationship for more than 20 years. Her passion for figure skating secured her the United States Figure Skating Association's 2020 Get Up Champion Award. Her memoir, Celebration of Sisters, It's Never Too Late to Grieve, launches in December of 2021, and it chronicles her journey through first suppressing, then honoring her grief over losing her sisters and offers hope for those struggling with suppressed or complicated grief. Judy, welcome to the Morning Glory Project. I'm so pleased that you're here with me today. Betsy, thank you so much for having me. I'm honored to be here as one of your guests with a group of such inspiring guests that you've had on your show. Really, I'm one of the luckiest people in the in the world. I get to interview people that are so inspiring and amazing to me, and now I'll count you among them. Tell me a bit about your family of origin and what it was like up until about 1981. I grew up as the middle of three girls, and my dad was the the insurance business. My mother, um, my father, Ben, my mother, Ellie, was a stay-at-home mom. My older sister, Margie, was my idol. She was my role model. I loved her. She was um, your typical big sister. She was a cheerleader, and um, she was always very good to me. I was the shy middle sister. And my sister, Jane, um, was cunning, and she knew how to get her way. And she was... <laughs> she was um, Margie and I were dark haired. Jane was blonde and she had a little cute little blonde bob and knew how to kind of get a, had everybody wrapped around her little finger. Well, the youngest is often like that, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and, um, you know, my, my mother would dress us all alike and we used to joke that Jane would get have to wear the same outfit for five years because she would get all the hand-me-downs. <laughs> so, so it sounds like a really close family. 
we were a very close family. And, you know, my mother was a stay-at-home mom. My dad worked, you know, long, hard hours. But, you know, we went on family vacations together. Um, every summer, we would go up to Maine and have a vacation. And we all ice skated together as a family. And um, we were a very, very close-knit family. Unfortunately, um, at age 14, Margie got sick with anorexia and bulimia. I was 11 and Jane was eight. So our lives kind of changed a lot at, at that point. Oh, my. So so your older sister, who was an idol, your role model, all of a sudden started exhibiting, I'm guessing, pretty serious symptoms. Can you tell me just a little bit about watching that, what that was like? Yes. So um, Jane and I had been away at camp together and Margie had been in Israel that summer and we came home and unfortunately, you never know what happens. And Margie came home and got sick. And this was 1972. So, you know, mental illness, as you know, is not a topic that was talked about. It was taboo. And um, my parents worked tirelessly to find care for her and take care for her. And unfortunately, um, it was an uphill battle for over 20 years. So in the midst of this, so Margie has teen, has anorexia through and bulimia through her teen years and, and young 20s. And then tell me about what occurred in 1981. So in 1981, I was 25 and living in New York, I had just gotten a promotion. I had worked for Bloomingdale's department stores. And I get a call that I never expected. My aunt came over and she told my got a call from my parents that tragically Jane had passed away in an automobile accident. Mm. And our lives changed forever in that instant. And um, you know, we initially we thought it was Margie because she had been so sick. And um, it's just your world changes in one minute, as you know. So so the tragic call that you were expecting because of your older sister's illness became a different kind of tragic call about your younger sister dying in an accident. That had to be, I mean, not that there's any, not that you would have preferred any of your sister's past at that time, of course, but it had to be really disorienting, sort of something you'd prepared yourself for didn't happen and something completely unexpected did. You're never prepared, whether it's you sort of know or you don't know. And it's just um, your world forever changes. And I was 25 in an age when, you know, your 20s are kind of precarious anyways. You don't really know where you're going. The tumultuous 20s, I call them, as I went through it with my own daughters. And your world just goes upside down in that one minute. And um, I think as siblings, as we've talked about, are the kind of forgotten mourners, because I think you're you're so worried caring for your parents and God, what what's this like for them that you don't take care of your own self. Mm. And so, so here you were at 25, having lost your younger sister. And just what, eight years later, in 19, let's see, I guess it was, uh, I'm not doing the math correctly, but about eight years later, tell me about your other sister. So Margie was sick for 20 years and, you know, my parents tried, you know, every way, shape or form to get the care for her. And um, tragically, you know, I got, my doorbell rang and I just knew and that she had gone. And, you know, we were always three and who am I now? 
you know, I'm Margie's gone, Jane's gone, who am I? So I just, I had two young daughters and, you know, here were my parents. I have tragedy struck twice, you know, what do we do? So I just went on a fast track and just was taking care of anybody, everybody. And my grief got put to the back seat and suppressed for 30 years. Well, let me linger there for a minute. I, I want to go back to something you said. You said a knock came at the door. Who knocked on your door to tell you about your sister's passing? Well, when Jane died, um, I was living in New York. So my parents have my aunt came over and then they called me. So I wasn't alone when I got oh. the news. And when Margie died, my parents came to my house. But I knew like it was, you know, seven or eight o'clock in the evening during the week when I had small children. So, I mean, they wouldn't have just popped over. Right? <laughs> exactly. It was out of the custom. You know, it's such a strange thing, that moment of knowing what isn't said. You know, I, I often wonder what that is in us, that recognition, whether it's we're seeing an expression on the face or we somehow knew in our heart that this was possible or probable or whatever, something you'd, my guess is that with Margie, as ill as she was for as long as she was, that you had been bracing yourself for some time for her loss. You know, I think, you know, life is funny and I think we all sort of know. Um, and I think with siblings, there's such a bond that years later, um, after Jane died, Margie and I had a conversation and Jane died you know, the hour that she died, she and I both woke up at that hour mm -hmm. that she died. And it's, you have a sense. And for whatever reason, you know. Mm. So you just used a phrase a little bit ago that stuck. You said, we were always three. <laughs> we were always three. And I, I know that in my own family, we were always five. Yet I saw, I always say I'm one of five. So when I too lost a sibling, it's like, well, I'm one of five, but my brother passed. You know, there's always this addendum to the explanation. And here you are, one of three, and now just one. You just said a moment ago that what you did is you just kind of went into overdrive of helping everybody else and doing, doing, doing. Is that accurate? I did. And, you know, that, that question that you bring up, you said, you know, we were five, you know, I'm one of five. And I couldn't, that question always, I always caught my breath. And how do I answer this? And what do I say? And after Margie died to new people I met, I would just say, it's just me. Mm. I never said, I'm in the middle of three I would just say it's just me rather than go into my life story. Now what I say is on the middle of three, sadly, I lost both my sisters. Mm. Yeah, I think maybe at first you don't say that because you really don't want to explain it again. You're protecting yourself. And, and maybe, you know, because when I say something like not only did my brother pass, but he took his own life. When I say that, there's this Paul that is cast, you know, and it, it's nothing like a conversation killer, right? So you, so you, <laughs> you, you don't necessarily want to jibber jabber about it in, when it's not appropriate in the conversation. So I'm not implying that every person you meet, you need to make this announcement to by any means. 
But at first, it's not just the kind of politeness. It seems like it's self-protective to not say, like, you know, you just can't deal with the intensity of it. I, I don't know about you, but I was always afraid, you know, I didn't want to start crying or I didn't want to overwhelm somebody. I didn't want to feel it in that moment. Exactly. And it's, I agree with you. And also I, I didn't want to cry. And also a part of me just didn't even believe it. Like, is this really me? Is this my life? Like what happened? So it's all of those emotions as well. So it's mm. just easier to just not go into the conversation. But I have found now that when you do say that, unfortunately, how many people are in our club that have lost siblings and they embrace you and they share your stories or other stories of grief and they want to have the conversation with you. So, well, that's, that's the cost of not saying, right. We also, right. we're keeping our little um, sorority or fraternity, whatever it is, we're seeing it, keeping it as a little private association. Whereas when we share it, somebody says, Oh my gosh, I lost my sister too. Or, or, Oh, you know, I lost a baby once or, whatever it might be, or my sister struggles with anorexia. When we share the story, when we don't share the story, we might be, might feel as though we are protecting ourselves and others from the discomfort or the grief or sadness of it. But we're also blocking off the opportunity for having connection and empathy with each other. It's, it's initially having the conversation that, and I think, for us and for others, but once you open that door, people people need to have the conversation and people like to have the conversation. It's a difficult conversation, but it opens your heart and other people's heart and it just it's a win win. It's for everybody. Well, and I, I would qualify it a little bit. I don't think everyone wants to have that conversation. No. You know, I, I, we all have to have some right, discernment right. about to whom we open our hearts or who who really can't handle emotional intensity and those kinds of things. Of course, I, I know you're not implying that you need to right. you know, get, rent out billboard space or something. Right. <laughs> you know, announce it to every person you meet on the subway. But I think there's a, a universality about loss that people can, if they're open-hearted, even if their loss was very different than yours, maybe it was a parent or a dear friend or whatever, that somehow they can find an empathy bridge to cross between their loss and your own. And if we don't share it, then we don't get that connection. Does it feel that way to you? Yes, because there's definitely a connection with grief I think in some ways, as I say, that everybody's journey is a little bit different and everybody's time frame is a little bit different, but everybody's, the commonalities are there and the feelings are there and the emotions are there and you share that. So when you have that conversation with somebody that you instantly have that connection. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering also, I, I've put a fair amount of thought into this and I, I'm curious what your thoughts might be. 
loss is loss. Grief is grief. There are thousands of ways to lose people. And, and whether it's by sudden tragedy or lingering illness or expected or by surprise, whether it's a parent or a pet or a dear friend, whatever it might be. But I think there's something unique about sibling loss. Do do you have any ideas about that? Have you thought about that? I think there is a uniqueness to sibling loss because I think the relationship with siblings is so unique. I think there's a bond with siblings, and I think there's a piece of us that thinks that siblings are going to be with us our whole lives. There's an assumption. There's an assumption. And who else are you going to like? rank out your parents and like say, oh my God, they're driving me crazy. Oh, this one's (laughs) doing this. And, you know, why is mom doing this? And dad's doing this. And, you know, you know, oh God, I don't want to turn out like this one. I don't want to be like this one. Oh, I have this in me. I have this of mom in me. I have this of dad in me. You know what I mean? So, and there's, there's a bond, no matter how complicated the relationships are, no matter how hard you fight, no matter how hard you always make up, you know, there's just a relationship there that, if you're a sibling of any sort, I think you understand that. And I just, I felt when my sisters, even though I didn't, how do I put this, sort of actively grieve for them, I always felt like a piece of me was missing, almost like mm. a twin feels like they're like a, they're missing, like an arm of me was missing all those years. Mm. And I think that that's why the siblings, it's just, it's a very unique relationship because there's, you've known each other your whole lives. Well, you know, I, I think of it as also that uh, in my own family, even though, as I said, I'm one of five, my brother and I were the, were the trail end. You know, we, were, we came several years after the first three, and there's eight years gap between the first three and me and then my younger brother. And so it felt like we were kind of two in some ways. And I felt as though um, he was witness to my life and I was witness to him in unique moments that nobody else saw. You know, when we, you know, when we were falling asleep at night or when we made forts in the woods or, you know, nobody else saw those moments, not even our parents. And so it felt as though I had lost a witness who could share it. You know, those stories that you tell and your sibling can finish the other part of it for you when you're playing cards with loved ones or whatever, the, that, that witness and that, that second part of the story that is missing and it feels different. And it also feels wrong. I think when, when losses happen out of what seems like the natural order, like the parents are supposed to pass before the siblings, Right. Not that we want your parents to have passed sooner, of course, but it seems out of the laws of nature when it goes out of sequence like that. Like nobody knows you better than your siblings. I mean, they're, I mean, I shared a room with my sister for 14 years and there's just the bond there that you just don't have with anybody else. So tell me, Judy, I know that then, you kind of tucked this away. You tucked your grief away. You took care of your parents. You did your life. You raised your children. And the subtitle of your book, you say, it's Celebration of Sisters, It's Never Too Late to Grieve. Tell me about what you mean by it's never too late to grieve. So 
I, after 30 years, so in 2011, well, 2010, my, um, my father was dying of a um, long-term illness. So I never, I didn't know really what grief was. I didn't really know what I needed. I didn't know, um, I would, you know, waves, I'd go through like waves of tears and, um, you know, the milestones would hit me, but I didn't know really what grief was or grieving. So um, it was too hard for my parents to talk about my sisters. So we didn't talk about them. So I just like went through my life, but I didn't really um, go through my sisters actually, actually grieve for them for almost 30 years. So in mm-hmm. 2010, um, my father was dying of neurological illness. And I ran into one of Jane's friends and one of Margie's friends who both wanted to talk to me about my respective sisters. And I just kind of felt like the signs are there, like I need to do this work. And I had been seeing a therapist and she said, you know, you, your sister's death really impacted you. You need to talk about this. So I really did some grief work, which I really needed to do and talk about my sisters. And I was accepted into a complicated grief study at Massachusetts General Hospital and really took the time to actually grieve for my sisters that I had never done through all these years. And it was challenging, heart-wrenching, empowering, and enlightening, and probably the best gift I could have given to myself. Heart-wrenching, but rewarding at the same time is that, you know, sometimes the, the hardest things and the things that we avoid are like that. We're so afraid of the discomfort that we don't anticipate the reward of having done so. You know, you're using a term that I want to linger with just for a moment, and that's the term complicated grief. You know, I've, as a therapist, I've heard that term, you know, that, that means when grief is complicated by other factors and, or it's unresolved or it's causing symptoms beyond what a normal, hate that word normal, but what a, a, a conventional grieving period might be. And I've often thought of, well, what is a simple grief? <laughs> you know, right. um, and, and to me, my grandfather, when he passed, he was 97 years old. He was adored by all. He had no unfinished business. He had had a healthy, happy life until, you know, just the last year or two of his life. He, of course, was fading some. Um, he never lost his consciousness. He didn't have Alzheimer's. He, you know, and when he passed, we were just sad to lose him, but there was nothing to un- nothing unfinished about it. And I always think, well, that's the simple grief. You know, someone, that that's the simplest form. It, not that we weren't sad, but it wasn't a complicated thing to talk through. <laughs> you know, it was, right. it was just, I'm sorry that grandpa's gone. But it gets more complicated from there when someone dies of, um, of shocking, like an accident, like your sister Jane, or of, of a psychological illness, like your sister Margie, or with unresolved business, or with conflict, or a relationship that was more complicated, or with resentments left behind, or with debts unpaid, or, you know, all of those kinds of things just make it more and more complicated. And it seems when you're talking about your own complicated grief, it's complicated by the delay as well, the kind of putting off of grieving. Yes. And that's why the title of the book is that I wasn't, for all the reasons in the my life, um, you know, taking care of everybody, Margie's illness, um, that it doesn't matter when you grieve, whether you start 
from day one or you start from six months. It's whatever works for you that, you know, it's everybody's personal journey and that the time is right. You know, I could beat myself up and say, you know, why didn't I do this, you know, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 15 years ago, but I can't. I did the best I could at the time mm-hmm. and I did it now. And thankfully I did. And the benefits and, you know, I did what I did and thank goodness I did. Can you tell me about the benefits of having gone through the grief? What, what's it like on the other? Not of course that you don't still miss your sisters, not of source, you know, grief never completely goes away, but can you tell me what it's like after having done that work versus not having done it? Well, I made things so much harder. I had, um, I, I wouldn't go to the cemetery. I had made it that it was going to be the most awful, horrible thing that I could never do. And it's just remembering them in a way that it's not so horrifically painful and sad that I can look at them and smile and remember things and stories and go to the cemetery and I put the flowers in and the sun came out. It was a cloudy day. Like, is that not a sign or what? Hmm. Um, Looking at the pictures now and, and seeing, oh my God, you know, we had fun. We went here, we went there, you know, Margie used to be able to put on eyeliner. I can't put on eyeliner. You know, what was that like? You know, Hmm. Jane, you know, with her Susie Q doll, you know, and, God, how cute she was and having memories of the fun we had and not looking at it with some, yes, of course, I'm going to be sad. There'll always be a hole in my heart, but there's also, I can smile and be happy and remember and that I had them for the time that I did. Well, once again, avoiding the negative, you know, the sorrow part robbed you of the sweet memories. It makes me think, of uh, President Biden, when he talks about grief, he, he says, I promise you there'll come a time when when you remember your lost loved one, a smile will come first before the tears. And I've thought of, he's, I've heard him say that a few times and, and it really kind of sung to me because I thought, you know, there was a time when, you know, you can't think of the loss, the person you lost without the tear first. But there comes a time when it's like, oh, the you know, the eyeliner, you know, or the, the, the silly memory or the, the goofy grin or the joke that you shared or something comes first. And, and yes, it may, it may have some sorrow woven into it. Let me also, I want to spend our last few minutes here talking about ice skating. (laughs) Now, now, Now that's a hard turn. It's going to sound like a hard turn, but tell me how ice skating factors into this story. So, um, I wanted to do, you know, a fundraiser to to celebrate my sister's lives. And um, we all skated as girls and we took, you know, lessons and um, our whole family skated. We always skated and um, fundraising has always just been part of our lives, our whole lives. And I didn't want to have a, you know, fundraiser that was fun that because my sisters were fun and they were vivacious and they were live. So, um, 10 years ago, I started this fundraiser celebration of of sisters, which is an ice skating fundraiser. And um, we started as 10 skaters with 50 people in the audience. Um, This last one, which is going to be November 7th, which will be actually the 40th anniversary of Janie's 
death. And that's November 7th, 2021. Yes. And I do it because that's Janie's, their birthdays and when Jane died. And we have 92 skaters and well, the last one this year, it's going to be hybrid because of COVID. And we've raised over $60,000 from Massachusetts General Hospital. And we have skaters of all disciplines and all ages. And at 50, 56, I had never performed and I went out alone and did a performance and I skate every year. And um, this year I'll be doing a final performance to Edelweiss and the girls' friends come and people come, and it's just a wonderful way to celebrate their lives and their memories and um, in a sport that we all loved. So you, rather than having a an annual kind of yard site celebration of, that's solemn or serious, that you have this joyous moment on the ice uh, celebrating what you loved together as girls, and then on top of it, raising money for a worthy cause. What a beautiful um, project that is. If folks want to learn about, and and because it's virtual, can folks see this online? Yes, this year they can. Um, I assume that one donates and and uh, that buys you a ticket, or how does it work? Yes, um, if you go to um, because.massgeneral.org backslash celebration of sisters, um, this year we're doing it via Zoom. This will be our last year. It's been 10 years. And you can watch it online this year, which is very exciting. So say it, say it really slowly for us again. Because? Because.massgeneral.org backslash celebration of sisters. All one word. Okay. So folks can go there and make a donation if they choose and watch this joyous celebration. I would imagine I'm not an ice skater. I, although I did work in a roller skating rink for (laughs) a number of years and I roller skated quite a lot. There's a, I imagine there's a pretty, a big feeling of elation when you get to slide across that ice and fly in memory of your sisters. It's a beautiful feeling. And I feel like they're one of them is each on each of my shoulders saying me, Judy, you've got this. (laughs) Well, your memoir, Celebration of Sisters, It's Never Too Late to Grieve, launches December 2021. I wish you every kind of success with it, and I know that others who have lost their siblings will find a connection in your story. Thank you so much for being part of the Morning Glory Project, Judy. Thank you so much for having me, Betsy. I've been thinking a lot about loss, and You know, it's one of those topics that can kind of be a conversation killer, (laughs) but it's also the most universal thing that everyone on the planet shares. If, If you live beyond your very earliest years and you love anyone in your world, you'll experience loss. And yet we're so reluctant to talk about it, so reluctant to share and to connect to each other about it, so fearful of our emotions about it that we avoid. And I get it. I I live it. I know it. I know how awful it is. And yet I also know how sweet the connection is, how sweet memories can be when we can push back that giant stone of the pain of it all. So 
I unapologetically welcome stories of loss here on the Morning Glory Project, and there's a sweetness to it, and I think of it as sweet bitter, right? It's not all sweet, of course, but there's a connection that we can find in one another. And certainly Judy has done that, and she has, like so many other of our guests here, has transformed her loss into a project, into a celebration, into a fundraiser. Whether you transform your loss into philanthropy, art, music, stories, generosity, connection. I think that that loss is so universal that it's currency that can be spent in a lot of different ways with a lot of different people, both private and public. So that's what we do here. (laughs) We celebrate those stories. Thank you so much for listening to The Morning Glory Project. It's my honor to have your time for this time. And I wish you comfort in your own losses and that you can find the sweet and the sweet bitter. And as always, I hope that you are finding your way to bloom.